Chapter 29 of The Romance of Modern Electricity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Modern Electricity by Charles R. Gibson. Chapter 29 How Electricity Aids the Conjurer. A Spirit Seance. A Most Remarkable Borrowed Penny. How the Audience Are Led Astray a wizard of sixty years ago, an extraordinary mansion. Electricity is a very helpful assistant in enabling the conjurer to delude his audience. There is no mystery now in a drum beating while suspended in the air, or in musical instruments playing in inaccessible parts of a hall, as the public have become well-versed in the electrical transmission of power, but a very good representation of a spirit-wrapping seance may be given by similar means. It is not my intention to attempt to expose the methods of any public entertainer, but on several occasions I have concocted and performed some electrical magic for the amusement at entertainments given in behalf of charities, and I shall use some of these as illustrations of how electricity aids the conjurer. In order to give an imitation of a spirit seance, one may place an empty tin box upon a little table at the front of the stage, and then, calling on the ethereal spirit to come and make itself manifest, make the audience hear, above the soft musical refrain from the piano, a distinct series of raps, first of all in some inaccessible corner, and then coming gradually nearer the stage till the rapping is distinctly heard upon the table, and ultimately upon the empty tin box, which has been previously examined by one or more of the members of the audience and placed by one of them upon the table. If one of the audience now selects any card from a pack of playing cards, the spirit will tell the number of the card, and when asked to answer by a single rap whether the card belongs to hearts, clubs, diamonds, or spades, it will remain silent till the right suit is named, and the conjurer is able to assure the audience that he did not know what card had been selected until he heard the raps from the empty box. A good deal of amusement can be obtained by such imitations, and there can be little secret here to disclose, for it is evident that the raps are produced by hidden electromagnetic devices similar in principle to an ordinary single-stroke bell. The wraps on the empty tin box are really taking place on a long, flat tin box concealed under the tabletop. And all these devices, placed in different parts of the room, are under the control of an assistant behind the scenes. The rest is mere trickery, as, for instance, with the cards. The conjurer has one complete pack of playing cards, and in addition, many packs of the same appearance, but each of these consisting of 52 cards of one particular value, the ace of spades, the ten of diamonds, and so on. The conjurer, of course, merely exhibits the complete and honest pack, and while he is asking a member of the audience to select any card, he exchanges the pack for one of the faked ones. In order that he may say to the audience that he does not know the selected card, he simply picks up at random any one of the faked packs before going on the stage and, without looking at it himself, he hands the hidden confederate one of the cards so that this assistant controlling the electric switches will now be able to cause the tin box to wrap out the number and suit of the card, which will necessarily be selected by the audience. This seance may of course, be extended in a great variety of ways. To take as another illustration a trick which I recently invented, and which met with the approval of a large audience. 
Coming upon the stage, I placed two small tables in the front, one at either end of the platform. I then request the temporary loan of one penny, which is easily obtained, but so that there may be no misunderstanding, I ask the lender if he will be good enough to mark the penny with his knife in any way he desires, so that he will not fail to recognize it again. This having been done behind my back, I request a lady close at hand to seal the penny up in an envelope and retain it meantime. Going upon the stage, I exhibit an empty tin box, and assuring the audience that it is empty and contains no hidden machinery of any kind, I request that anyone desiring to examine the box for himself should do so. A gentleman comes forward, but as soon as the box is touched, it deals out a series of sudden shocks, so that the examiner refuses to have anything more to do with it, and no one else seems willing to risk electrocution, while the convulsive jumps of the would-be inspector have given the audience and himself some amusement. Remarking to the audience that I suffer no inconvenience in handling the box, I proceed to close it, not only putting its lid on, but also tying a ribbon around it to ensure the lid remaining firmly closed. Holding the box by the ribbon, I place it upon four glass tumblers, which act as transparent legs to keep the box clear of the table and insulated from the rest of the material world. Now taking a pasteboard box down to the audience, I request the lady, who has meantime held the borrowed penny, to place it in its enclosing envelope inside the box, she tying a ribbon around it to prevent my opening it. Carrying this box by the ribbon and keeping it in view of the audience all the time, I place it upon four other glass tumblers on the little table at the opposite end of the stage from the tin box. Then standing right in the center of the stage, I tell the audience that the borrowed penny is now in the pasteboard box, securely sealed up in the envelope, just exactly as the lady placed it there. It may be remarked here that some people think that a conjurer has a special license to say a thing is somewhere when it is not, but that is never the case. He may pretend to play something where he really does not, but when he tells the audience that the borrowed article is in a certain place, then it really is there. Thus assuring the audience that the borrowed penny is still in the pasteboard box, I ask them to pay particular attention to my movements, watching that I never go near either of the tables. I then command that the penny should break up into its individual molecules so that it may easily pass through its imprisonment. A little gentle music from the pianist and I inform the audience that if they can see a sort of mist hanging over the stage, they can then see the penny in solution. I then command that the penny shall, after a few bars of lively music, quickly rush together again and fall down inside of one of the four tumblers under the tin box on the other table. At the moment when the music ceases, the penny is distinctly heard to fall into one of the tumblers, but not satisfied with this, and still standing in the center of the stage, I ask the penny to once more quickly disintegrate and pass through into the tin box. A few bars of music in the audience, listening to the movement of the penny, are satisfied that it has entered the box. But to show how well under control it is, I ask the penny to spin round on the bottom of the box. This is done. And still remaining in the center of the stage, I request the gentleman who was good enough to lend me the penny to come up on the stage himself and open the tin box, and I ask him to tell the audience quite frankly whether or not it is his penny that is now in the tin box, and I assure the gentleman that if he finds the marks as he made them, he may be certain that there is no trickery there, as I have not the faintest idea how he marked the coin, nor has any confederate seen or handled it. 
Having removed the ribbon and the lid, the lender carefully examines the penny, which he emphatically declares to be the borrowed penny and no other. I then ask the gentleman if he will be good enough to lift the pasteboard box off the other table and take it down to the lady who deposited the penny in it. She finds the envelope empty, but without any trace to indicate how the penny escaped. More than one scientific friend remarked to me after the performance that if it was really true that the borrowed penny was still in the pasteboard box after I left it on the table, it seemed an utter impossibility that the lender should find it in the tin box. I not only assured them that the penny was left in the pasteboard box, but it was also true that I never handled the borrowed coin after handing it over to the lady for sealing up in the envelope. All this, doubtless, seems mysterious, and yet it is very simple from behind the scenes, for it is very much easier to make up an entanglement of this kind than it is for an outsider to disentangle it. First of all, the electrical apparatus is very simple and is merely to deceive the sense of hearing upon which the audience are going to depend as to the whereabouts of the borrowed penny. I first of all made up a flat glass vessel to be placed immediately under the tabletop, and I supported a penny over this glass box by drilling a hole in the coin and passing a fine silver wire through it over the top of the box. The silver wire was connected to the wires leading down to the legs of the table, and thence under the carpet to the back of the stage, where an assistant would switch on an electric current and fuse the fine silver wire, allowing the penny to fall into the glass vessel at the desired moment. This jingling noise of the falling penny really takes place, of course, in the glass vessel immediately under the tabletop, but the audience believe it to occur in the tumbler. A similar stretch wire and penny placed over a hidden tin box completes the deception as far as the dropping of the penny is concerned. Another tin box with a simple electromagnetic device sets a penny spinning on the bottom of a box. The audience hears these sounds while intently watching the box and tumblers on the top of the table, and the deception is wonderfully efficient. While the conjurer here depends on electricity to produce the desired effect as far as the senses are concerned, there must be an attempt to mystify the mind or to lead the thoughts of the audience astray. The most misleading part of the trick really consists in my being able to deceive the audience as to the identity of the borrowed penny. To make the matter quite clear, let us first of all merely follow the borrowed penny. I took it from the gentleman, handed it to the lady who sealed it in an envelope, and later on placed it in the pasteboard box. The box was taken onto the stage, the penny was never touched, and still lay there where it was put till the trick was over and done and the audience away. I made the box with a false bottom so arranged that it at first acted as one of the sides, being folded back against the real side, and I had previously placed an empty envelope, identical in appearance to the one I gave to the lady, between the false bottom and the side, so that when the lady deposited the envelope with the borrowed penny in the box, the false bottom closed down upon it, safely hiding it and exposing in its place the empty envelope to be discovered there later on. This was the borrowed penny, but it was not the penny the lender marked, for when he handed me the penny at the outset, I pretended just to recollect, as I was taking it from him, that it would be better to mark it, whereas I really handed him another penny of my own, which I had hidden in the palm of my hand. He took this penny, believing it to be the penny he had just taken out of his pocket, and if questioned, I doubt he would admit that the penny ever left his hand, and so he marked this penny of mine. I retained this marked penny, leaving the borrowed penny with the lady. 
and while the audience were laughing at the eccentricities of the gentleman who got a shock on touching the tin box, I placed this marked penny on the bottom of the tin box, then put the lid on and tied it up. The trick was, of course, really over, as far as I was concerned, before it had begun in the minds of the audience, and this is a safe principle upon which to build up a trick. I was able to say truthfully that the borrowed penny was in the pasteboard box, and it was the lender who examined the marked penny in the tin box and said that it was his penny. It certainly was the penny he marked, but not the borrowed penny, and so the mystery was obtained. In order to deal out the electric shocks from the tin box to the would-be inspector, I had previously deposited two large pieces of sheet iron below the carpet and connected these to a battery and induction coil under the control of an assistant behind the scenes. When I stood on one hidden plate and the member of the audience over the other plate, we completed the circuit through the box in our hands. Of course, I received a similar shock to the victim, but being prepared for it, I took it more calmly. This part of the trick was merely a blind to give the amateur conjurer a safe opportunity of placing the marked penny in the box without attracting attention. One would hardly credit how much the audience really see in their imagination. I have heard the narration of some of my tricks by members of the audience, and it is really quite remarkable how the actual facts are altered by their imaginative powers. This somewhat lengthy description will serve to illustrate the application of electricity to the black art. A very interesting account was published, about a quarter of a century ago, of how Robert Houdin, a famous French conjurer, amused himself after his retirement to a beautiful mansion in the village of St. Gervais. For this account, I've extracted those parts seeming of most interest. In describing the mansion, the writer, presumably Houdin himself, says with reference to the avenue gateway, distant about a quarter of a mile from the house. The visitor, presenting himself before the door on the left, sees a gilt plate bearing the name of Robert Udon, below which is a small gilt knocker. He raises this according to his fancy, but, no matter how feeble the blow, a delicately timed chime of bells sounding through the mansion announces his presence. When the attendant touches a button placed in the hall, the chime ceases. The bolt at the entrance is thrown back, the name of Robert Udon disappears from the door, and in its place appears the word entree in white enamel. The visitor pushes open the door and enters. He closes with a spring behind him, and he cannot depart without permission. This door and opening sounds two distinct chimes, which are repeated in the inverse order in closing. Four distinct sounds, then, separated by equal intervals, are produced. In this way, a single visitor is announced. If many come together, as each holds the door open for the next, the intervals between the first two and the last two strokes indicate with great accuracy, especially to a practiced ear, the number who have entered, and the preparation for the reception is made accordingly. A resident of the place is readily distinguished, for, knowing in advance what is to occur, he knocks and at the instant that the bolt slips back, he enters. The equidistant strokes follow immediately the pressing of the button. But a new visitor, surprised at the appearance of the word entree, hesitates for a second or two, then presses open the door gradually and enters slowly. 
The four strokes now indicated by a short interval succeed the pressing of the button by quite an appreciable time, and the host makes ready to receive a stranger. The traveling beggar, fearful of committing some indiscretion, raises timidly the knocker. He hesitates to enter, and when he does, it is only with great slowness and caution. This the chimes unerringly announce. It seems to persons at the house as if they actually saw the poor mendicant pass the entrance, and in going to meet him, they are never mistaken. Electrical arrangements were also provided for signaling the arrival of a carriage and dealing with the gates in response, while a postman received from a bell at the gate instructions whether to leave the letters in the box or if it was necessary for him to go up to the house to collect some letters. My electric doorkeeper, says Udan, leaves me nothing to be desired. His service is most exact. His fidelity is thoroughly proven. His discretion is unequaled. And as to his salary, I doubt the possibility of obtaining an equal service or a smaller remuneration. Udan had a favorite mare to which he was much attached and the food for this horse was automatically placed in its trough thrice daily, the apparatus being controlled by a clock in the study. The reason for this arrangement seems to have been that Udan had found his mare being underfed by a former hostler who converted as much food as possible into hard cash for his own behoof. In order to prevent the hostler remaining in the stable while the horse was fed, the oats were only allowed to fall into the trough while the stable door was shut and locked, and he could not remain in, as he could only lock the door from the outside. The man could not re-enter while the oats were in the manger without his master being informed of the fact, for if the door was opened before the oats were finished, a signal was given in the house. The power for ringing some bells in the tower was stored in a most ingenious way, for between the kitchen situated on the ground floor and the clockwork in the garret, there was a contrivance so arranged that the servants in going to and fro about their work wound up the weights without being conscious of it. The ringing of these bells was electrically controlled by the study clock, which also operated time dials in several rooms. If Udon desired dinner earlier, he simply pressed a button in the study and put the kitchen clock forward a quarter of an hour, the same clock switched on continuous ringing alarms to waken the servants in the morning. Houdan evidently had his greenhouses connected with his study by thermoelectric apparatus, for he would surprise his gardener by saying, Jean, you had too much heat last night. You will scorch my geraniums. Or, Jean, you are in danger of freezing my orange trees. The house was fitted with automatic electric fire alarms and burglar alarms, the latter being switched on to every door and window at the hour of midnight by the study clock, and again disconnected by the clock in the morning. It is probably almost half a century since this wonderful mansion was thus equipped. I have found no means of learning exactly when Udon retired and went to live in it, but it is certain that he was using electromagnetic apparatus to aid him in stage effects in Paris during the year 1845, at which date we consider electricity to have been in its early infancy. End of chapter 29. Read by Lindsay Strausser. Jacksonville. August 2022.